listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. This week's guest features somebody who's not directly in the military, but worked very closely with military members. In fact, led them into combat operations as well. Part of the Naval Investigative Service. We'll get to him in just a moment. First, a few reminders. As we always do, if you're going to do some holiday shopping on Amazon, make sure you go to hazardground.com first. Click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or into the Sponsors tab. It'll redirect you to Amazon. You can do all your normal Amazon shopping there. We will get a percentage of what you guys spend, and then we will donate a percentage of that back to some of the great charities and organizations you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground. Please follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground at Hazard Ground Podcast. Uh, As well, don't forget to leave us Apple reviews wherever you get uh, podcasts or your Apple podcast, rather. Make sure you leave us a review. Give us five stars. Tell us why you love the show. We certainly appreciate it. It'll help us grow uh, this Hazard Ground community. And again, we're available Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you get podcasts. Obviously, you can hear the Hazard Ground. All right, this week's guest. Again, we go outside the bounds of our typical military members here to get somebody who is not actually in the military but has worked very closely with military members and military units. He spent 27 years total, or just under 27 years, in the Naval Investigative Service or the Naval NCIS. You know the show NCIS? Yeah, that was, uh, that was part of the whole deal. But Naval Investigative Service, he had combat deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan as well as deployments around the rest of the world, working in counterintelligence, and counterterrorism, and at certain points throughout his career, actually was in charge of military troops and military units. He is David Truesdale joining us here on the Hazard Ground. David, welcome, and thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. I'm uh, honored to be uh, on your show among some of you. You know, I've looked at some of your guests and and just really pleased that you asked me to be on. Thank you. No, I, I think it's a great story. And I neglected to mention, I do need to mention this, that you're also the co-founder of the Warrior Spirit Project, which provides trauma-informed yoga and meditation to veterans and first responders. We'll definitely talk about that at the end. A a unique and fascinating program uh, for veterans and first responders. But, you know, it's great to have you here. You know, you and I connected on LinkedIn, and I was just kind of curious about your story and reading through your bio and everything that you had been involved in. And I couldn't really tell if you were in the Navy or you were, like, you know, not in the Navy. And, you know, I've seen the show NCIS, but, you know, everybody in the show was in the Navy, so I wasn't 100% clear. You know, and the Intel community gets all... Weird. You guys are you guys are out there doing your own little thing that no one ever knows about. But you know, we connected and started talking. I'm like, you know, there's a there's a real story here, and I'm excited for the audience to hear it. So I appreciate you doing this. But you know, at one point we talked. You said that you you tried to get in the military, wanted to get in the military, and it didn't work out. So what happened? Well, okay. So I'll try to make a long story short. I come from a Marine Corps family. My father was a, a career Marine officer. My grandfather was actually uh ONI agent which is an office of naval intelligence agent and then later became a police officer uh he was killed in the line of duty right after I was born both my brothers enlisted in the marine corps right out of high school when it was my turn to enlist right out of high school my father came to me and said hey you know could we get an officer son please and um I was not, I, high school told me I was not college material. So I said, well, that's probably going to have to wait a little bit. Uh, fast forward, went to college, graduated college, applied to 
an OCS program and they took two practicing attorneys uh, out of the Houston district. So henceforth, no Marine Corps career for me. Um, do you have any regrets about that after everything you, you did about not being able to get in? Do you feel like you would have been different had you gone in? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and I actually struggled with that because, you know, that that was I, I look and I consider I come from a warrior family. Mm -hmm. Um, the fact that I did not get in has, has left some, um, some issues with, um, sorry, I'm almost going to tear up on this. No, it's, I mean, listen, I I get, I mean, look, for lack of a better way to phrase it, it's a family business, right? Like that's, that's what you guys are in. And, uh, whether that's the military, whether it's farming, whether it's police work, whether it's lawyers, it's the family business. And to not be part of that, obviously, you know, w- would make you feel a certain way. I, I certainly can understand that. Yes, it actually did. Um, I think I've worked through that because I think that through, and I say, I think, um, I feel I've worked through that. Um, once I hired on with the government as a NCIS agent, and I began closely working with the military, I was providing a service to the military um, that kind of made me feel that I was serving. Um, throughout my career, I've actually uh, supervised or led military troops. And as you as you stated earlier, um, I led military troops in Iraq as well as Afghanistan. Um, I led military troops in Iraq on missions to capture terrorists, to um, you know collect intelligence. We were not um, 0311 Marines. We're not out there you know, looking to uh, engage the enemy. We're kind of doing more sneak and peek and and then ultimately targeting individuals and trying to capture them for, you know, to lead to additional targeting. Right. Um, after you found out you weren't going to be in the Marines, was that your immediate goal, just to find something tangential to the military, as close to the military as possible? No, actually it wasn't. Um, at that point, and of course, the recruiter told me, no, go ahead and enlist. And once you hit boot camp, they're going to look and go, college boy, kick him up to OCS. And uh, I said, I just graduated college. I'm not buying that one. So give me that OCS slot or call me later when you've got one. Um, I needed to eat. Basically, I've got to, you know, got to survive, got to pay rent. I ended up, I hired on with the state of Texas as a Texas uh, institutional parole officer, um, which meant that I spent about two and a half years inside the penitentiary working with interviewing inmates and and basically honing interrogation skills, uh, which later on became uh, very beneficial for me. Um I had spoken to an NIS agent just before my father retired. My father was in Quantico and I was helping him move the family when he retired. And he introduced me to an NIS agent. Basically, the guy said, "Uh, go away, kid, get some experience, call us back, here's a brochure. And I said, okay, great. Took the brochure, threw it in a drawer. Later on, a friend of mine that I worked with was trying to on with the FBI and he was running out of time because they had an age limit. So I gave him those brochures, said, Hey, I think these guys are federal agents, you know, try them. So he interviewed, came back, said, Hey, this is a good deal. Travel, 
decent pay. I said, give me that back and took it back, applied and got hired. All right. So it's kind of, you know, just by chance that you ended up getting into NIS. Did you, did you know what you wanted to do like specifically in NIS? I mean, it's a pretty wide field, but did you have this sense of that the intelligence community is where you wanted to be? Um, no, because again, the, the agency is a little unusual. You know, they've got their counterintelligence, they have their criminal investigations, they had a big fraud program. And so when you come on, they kind of direct you. Um, one of the guys I was in basic with was a Russian linguist and, you know, read, wrote, Cyrillic, I mean, under, understood everything, ended up working sex crime. So sometimes. Yeah, okay. you know, sometimes well, the government, as we all know, doesn't quite make sense. But um, so I just kind of went where they told me to go. Makes sense. Uh, where they told you to go at the outset, um, you know, from your resume, Tennessee, you had multiple stops in, in Japan, um, you know, uh, China Lake, California. And then you end up at Camp Lejeune in North Carolina um, doing criminal investigations there, state, federal, military law, and things of that nature. But you are there when 9-11 happens, correct? I was actually in intelligence school on 9-11. Okay, but from okay. Your, your station at Camp Lejeune, right? Station at Camp Lejeune. Okay. So I was in what they call the Joint Counterintelligence Training Academy, or just CETA. It was up in Maryland at the time. Yep. So I was in, we were in a brief with one of the three-letter agents you know, being briefed on sensitive sources and methods and all this other, you know, good stuff. We took a break and we actually watched the second strike from the tower um, into the tower. And I remember telling this high ranking individual that was briefing us, I said, we need to hunt these people down and kill them. And he looked at me and he says, you don't understand this. You know, we have sensitive sources and methods. And I said, yes, and that's why you use them. You use these techniques to save people, to hunt bad people down. And so at that point, um, I knew that this, is, this was going to change my life. And at that point in time, um, you get assigned to, to stand up a counterterrorism squad at Camp Lejeune. That's correct. We didn't um, – 9-11 – virtually changed our entire agency. And so we went pretty much away from a lot of the large scale fraud investigations and a little bit away from some of the counterintelligence and really began to focus on um, counterterrorism. And we actually participated with the FBI and every other federal agency in the, um, they call the World Trade Center bombings. Mm -hmm. And so when I got back from school, they said, because I'd been a squad leader before running a operation squad, they said, Dave, you need to stand up a counterterrorism squad. And I'm like, absolutely. And so we did. And we did some good stuff right there in North Carolina. And I was really shocked at how close we had terrorists outside the base and coming onto the base. Let me ask you just a general question. And it's funny, sure. I've, ne I've never really asked this question of military folks because I have an understanding of it in a military sense, in a military scope. Uh, Counterterrorism briefs well, and it sounds great, and politicians say it, and everybody, oh, I know what that means, I understand it. 
But no, I don't think you do, because I'll ask the question this way. What's the difference between counterintelligence and counterterrorism? Is it simply just the concept of targeting? Um, well, I think, you know, for a long time, the counterintelligence was more geared towards Russia, right. China, this kind of thing, which they're not deliberately targeting us, trying to kill us. The counterterrorism is we're looking at people who are actively right. engaged in trying to blow us up and kill us. So it's very different from that standpoint. Yeah. Uh, the methodology that we use is essentially the same, but ultimately in the end, you know, we write a target package and we pass it off to either a military commander um, or we go out and we prosecute that targeting package ourselves. In, in short, I, I guess counterintelligence is more nebulous and sort of big picture, whereas counterterrorism is more focused and direct. Uh, indirect yes, action versus I, direct action. Yeah, I like to think the counterintelligence is the martini clinking James Bond kind of thing, and the counterterrorism is the, you know, the the um, shot of, the shot of tequila. <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> that's well done. I like the way we we put that together. That's a uh, that's impressive there. All right, um, so you start doing all this counterterrorism stuff. Um, you get sent back to Japan for a third time, but then ultimately you end up in Iraq uh, in two thousand and four. So I know this isn't the first time you worked with military, but what is different about working with the military when you actually are on ground in a deployment in Iraq than necessarily it was in any other place around the world? Um, I'll say the seriousness of it. Um, obviously, you know, many situations prior to that are, are life and death. I mean, right. anytime that you're dealing with with different criminal enterprises, there's potential for death there. Um, in Iraq, I was part of the Coalition Provisional Counterintelligence Authority, CPACI. And um, I led what they called Blue Team. We had three teams. We had Blue Team, we had Red Team, and then we had a another team that was looking at uh, kind of the insider threat inside the green zone. because. Yeah. <laughs> Back the then, zone. in 04, that was re- the insider threat was a very big thing. Oh, it was huge yeah. because they didn't know who was living inside right. the green zone. And they didn't know um, who the good every- guys were and who the bad guys were. Yeah. Yeah. As I explained to one, one person on one of my teams one time because they asked that question, who are the bad guys? And I go, anybody that's not in the uniform that is part of the military, our military, or not on our team. Everybody else is a bad guy. That, I mean, it's a fair, it's a fair way to phrase. I mean, it, I've said this r- routinely. This is the hardest part about, you know, in in the war on terror that we've dealt with. It, it's not German uniforms, American uniforms. You know, it, it's not the Axis powers versus the Allied powers. It's a bunch of people who all look the same, who all dress the same, who all talk the same, and one guy's got a gun underneath his his robe that wants to kill you, and the other guy extends his hand and wants to shake it. So you don't, and they look exactly the same. So the, the, the enemy has a, it's a completely different playing field. And especially yes. in urban warfare, when you're in cities like Baghdad, I mean, Afghanistan, a little bit different when you, with the terrain, but when you're in, when you're in an urban environment like Baghdad, house to house, you don't know what house is full of good guys, which ones are full of bad guys. They could be right next door to each other. Yes. And one of the things that I, that we found is you really don't know how bad everybody is. <laughs> Until you find out how bad they are. <laughs> 
Yeah, even when you scoop them up and you get them and you put them in the box and you interrogate them for a couple of days and then later on they, you know, get processed up and out. Um, and I say out out of the immediate AOR into a different facility. Um, but months later, you may get a call from somebody going, hey, do you have X, Y, and Z that you snatched from this particular person? Because we now have determined that they were involved in this other specific bombing or killing or beheading or anything else. And, and so it's just, it was really, it was different, very unique. Tell me about some of the sort of missions that you, you led soldiers on troops on or worked with them on. Like, you know, is there any particular experience that stands out to you about working directly with the military? Well, I mean, there was a lot we did. I don't, I know we counted missions, you know, because we had to write reports. And so at the end, when you get a, you know, a fit rep kind of thing and they write it up and they give you an award and they say, you led this X amount of missions. Um, I think one of the ones that, that really resonated with me is the, the Blackwater killings that uh, led up to Fallujah, Fallujah one. Um, We were the first, people that were contacted with regard to doing any kind of interviews or look at or anything on that. Um, Blackwater called us and said, Hey, our guys were killed. Essentially nobody is coming to us talking to about talking to us about it. The truck drivers who survived the foreign national, because they were not Iraqis, they were a variety of other nationalities. They were up in Taji, sitting there after Fallujah, and nobody's talked to them. And I said, okay, I don't know where the hell Taji's at, but if you've got somebody that'll take us to where they're at, let's go. And so I got my team and got one of the guys from Blackwater, and we went up and we snatched these drivers and we brought them back and we interviewed them, interviewed them. Um, and ultimately determined their lack of involvement in the entire situation. We looked at the vehicles because they had all the the trucks that were in that convoy when they were attacked, other than the ones that were completely destroyed and left. So we looked at that to verify that what they were saying was true. We then began putting targeting packages and really focusing on trying to identify individuals that were involved. These guys were great witnesses saying, hey, the attack started here. This guy was a signal guy. I mean, it was, they were really informative. So ultimately, uh, we started running a lot of sources trying to track down those people. And we got good information on two of them. We went with, uh, we went to one of the combatant commanders and said, hey, we've got a targeting package on this guy. This is where he's at. Will you help us get it? And they said, absolutely. So we put together a big op plan with him and rolled out with tanks and, you know, barbed wire the entire neighborhood and went. And we got to where the guy was supposed to be. And they said, yeah, 45 minutes ago, which is when they were setting up all the barbed wire. Um other bad guys came and took him. And so he's no longer there. Well, we had intel on where the second guy was. 
So I just looked at my team and I said, let them clean up and, and we're going to go get this other guy. And so we went out with virtually other than the military members that were part of my team, no military support and snatched up another guy. And so we brought him back and um, that was shortly before I left. He was a very, very bad individual, and every time he had been shot, so he was in a hospital. And after we snatched him and brought him back into U.S. custody, every time we went to talk to him, he would, like, stick his fingers into his wounds and dig them out to the point where the hospital wouldn't allow us to take him out to to interrogate him. Really? So that was one. I mean, there's, there's, there's others. Um, I mean, we could, we could talk for days, as you know, anytime that you've been there would, you know, we could do our, our, our stories for days. No. And, and again, I'm just, I, you know, it's something as notable as Blackwater because it, it made such news, right? It made such headlines. Um, and there was, you know, the response to that was to go take back the city of Fallujah, right? Like that was, there was a massive counteroffensive uh, to yes. that. Um, that, 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 you know, that came out of that. So I think that stuff is significant and it's, you know, it's kind of the kind of stuff that, you know, a lot of you guys did that was sort of, for lack of a better term, thankless, right? You, you do it under sort of the, the cloak of darkness and it's, it's not talked about. And it's, it's not ever applauded. You know, we, we end up high-fiving the guys who take back the city and do the, the, the sort of part of bringing bad guys to justice that is easy in a sense, comparatively speaking, to what you guys have to do. So I'm, I'm always intrigued by it. And again, the, the, the sort of working side by side with the military, I mean, for somebody who didn't get in, did you at that point start to feel that camaraderie? Like, even though you weren't in, you were sort of in, does any of those feelings start to surface for you? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I look at, and, and you mentioned earlier about MVP um, is this is my community, right? Even though I was technically not, in the military, I was with the military, and this is my community. I don't feel comfortable outside of this community. I do in the law enforcement community also, but um, this is my community. And so jumping back for another good story, kind of like behind the scenes thing, is yes, our function is to target individuals, to give um, teams, shooters, however you want to say it, to give them targets, okay? So every day that that a special operations team goes out, they go out based on intelligence derived by people like me, as in addition to other military intelligence people. In Iraq, we got information about a uh, organization, a loose group of um, small terrorist cells that had a missile and intended to shoot down an airplane. And of course, you know, we interviewed the guy and, and the guy seemed really credible. And then we brought in a, um, one of the, uh, Iraqi counterterrorism guys. And we said, Hey, what do you think? And he goes, Oh, he's a liar. And we're like, he sounds pretty credible to us, you know? And I, and I had interpreters on my team. Um, and he says, no, he's absolutely, he's a liar. And I said, well, why do you say that? And he goes, well, he's, he's Shia and Shias are liars. And I'm going, well, okay. So now I'm starting to clue. What about his information? And they said, oh, we believe his information. 
And I said, okay, great. Well, the individual that had the missile that intended to shoot down, and they had a, a plan. They had the, the flight, the itinerary of a specific plane, when it took off, what direction it took off, where they were going to shoot it down from. And so we passed that information on because it was uh, further up by uh, another airbase. The team that uh, was assigned to go out and do that clandestinely go and search a specific area and, and try to snatch up um, the missile without revealing that we knew where the missile was, uh, didn't quite follow through with that. And they just like drove up to the, to the house where the missile was, booted the door, went in, dug it up and, you know, saved the plane. So ultimately there were three people that knew where that was. That's pretty awesome. Our guy, our source, the main bad, bad guy and the main bad guy's best friend. Well, now we're like, oh shit. Our guy's going to get killed. Well, no, bad guy's an idiot. Turns around, kills his best friend, tells our source he must have leaked. So, you know, that was that for us. You know, you're talking a plane load of people. And um, so that's a, that's a win for us. Yeah. No, again, I mean, and, and those are the kind of stories you, you never hear about, right? Like those are the, the operations that no one ever talks about unless you were a part of them and knew about them, or you had some connection to them from the military itself. I would never know about, right? Like nobody would ever know about it. You just, it, it's not something that's ever widely discussed. So again, that's why I, 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 I really thought this conversation was worthwhile to our audience because these, these are things that we would never know otherwise. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, any of the people that pilots, you know, of course, they put out a flash message, you know, when we get the information that, you know, and so they vary the routes of the planes and times and dates and stuff. But, um, yeah, I mean, we saved a plane load of people. And and to me, that's that's a pretty significant yeah. thing. <laughs> I mean, it's it, it you get chills thinking about it, you know, Um and, and it's weird because you say a plane load of people, and the first thing that popped into my mind was the images of the last planes departing Afghanistan with 800 people on them. Like, imagine, you know, that sort of uh, carnage is crazy. Um, so you finish up Iraq, uh, and, and then your next assignment, I'm just curious about this, was Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. And the only reason I'm curious about it is because, well, that was the detention center at that point in time. That's where all the bad guys went. So was there anybody that you found in Iraq that you ended up seeing at Guantanamo? Um, I don't think so. Oh, okay. Um, like, hey, I know no. you. I, I know you. Yeah, I've had that happen in some other situations, which is always kind of funny. Um, or people ask you, do I know you? Yeah. And you're going, no, but I do know you. But I do know you. <laughs> so no, my my mission down there was a little bit different. I was on the other side. I did go over to the detention centers and mm -hmm. um you know, interact with them. But my mission down there was different. Okay. I was just curious if there was any sort of a connection um, with. Uh, I wish. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, you go back to Japan again. What is that like your fourth time in Japan? Like, why do they keep sending you back there? Uh, I don't know. Cause I kept asking for Europe. Oh, that makes a lot <laughs> of sense. Yeah. So, I mean, I love Japan. It was a great place. I've got lots of connections there. I mean, you know, I'm a martial artist and my martial art was there. 
And, and so I was happy to go there. Um, I volunteered to go every, every chance I got, I volunteered to go back to an overseas location because I really, in an overseas location, you're much more embedded with the military. Right. And I really didn't feel at home there. I mean, um, most of the time we did not live on base. Um, there was one, t- one time we, um, two times we lived on base. And, um, so, you know, that embeds you, you're kind of like the redheaded stepchild, you know, you get invited to invited to the parties, but then you show up and they go, Oh God, here, wait a minute. Everybody behave themselves. And you're like, really? So, uh, it's it's different, but it's good, right? Um, so your next stop is Afghanistan. You get a, you get the Bagram, but now you're attached to SOCOM, the Special Operations Command. Um, did you have any experience with special ops when you were in Iraq? Yes or no? Yes. Okay, I, I assume yes. you did. I mean, obviously, but you know, now you're embedded with these guys. Is first off, is anything different with that more than anything? Like, is it being embedded with them? Is the environment different? The operational okay, tempo. Okay, so the, the way that whole trans, yeah, the way that whole thing transpired is, um, I knew that I was getting ready to retire in, in a couple of years, and so I called headquarters and I said, "I've got to go back." I said, "I've unfinished business." You know, there's um, things that I wish I had done that I didn't do. Um, so I said. I need to go back, find me a deployment. I want to go back in a, in a counterterrorism bill. And they said, Hey, we've got a, we've got a billet for you. So comes come to us. And they said, they want you to, they want us to stand up a team uh, working with them. And I said, absolutely. So love to. So went out to brag, you know, did some additional training, went through some program stuff and then deployed out of Fort Bragg with uh, the command got there and i just have to say that this was the best run organization that i have ever seen really uh, yes and the the command was flat so everybody knew who the general was but besides that and kind of everybody had an idea okay this guy's this guy's an officer this guy's enlisted but nobody wore rank and everybody listened to everybody if you had an if you had something intelligent to say and you were in a meeting, I don't care if you were, a, you know, a seaman apprentice, mm-hmm. you could speak up in a meeting that a general's attending and say, this is what I think. Um, and so it was, it was amazing. And I particularly was working with the gym commander and I kept referring to him as, you know, as my boss. And he kept going, Dave, I'm not your boss. We just work together. Um, but I got to travel around. We got guys embedded in all the different teams that were over there, mm-hmm. the, the groups, the teams. And um, I was really, to me, I was really proud that we were able to bring something to them. Now, each one had a different level. Some of them were, we, what we brought, some of them got it already. They just needed a little, you know, poking, prodding, refining, mentoring, assisting. And others of them were like, yeah, we don't do that because that's not our job. And it's, well, 
now you have somebody whose job it is to help you do that, and we will help you because that's how you find somebody to go out the next night. Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I had the fortunate pleasure in my career of, of working in the special operations community. I've told this story a hundred times. It's It was the best part of my military career. It was the best experience. Uh, I never learned more. I never uh, was challenged more, um, and I never worked harder <laughs> than I did uh, on that deployment with those guys. Um, you know, because you just get this sense that, you don't want to let anybody down, right? You don't. You don't want to be the one, the one link in the chain that doesn't keep it together, right? And so, uh, you you're always putting your best foot forward. Now, operationally, um, you know, Afghanistan is a completely different environment than Iraq. We talked about that a moment ago, just based off the terrain and everything else. Uh, when you're doing operations in Afghanistan, how much tougher was it for you guys, given the fact that you know you're not in a city? It's not as easy to. Uh, especially when doing counterintelligence, right? It's not as easy to gain information without either moving long distances or, um, you know, having to connect more dots based off the distance and things of that nature. So what are the challenges that you're seeing in Afghanistan that you didn't see in Iraq? Okay, so there were different groups um, that my organization were part of over there. The specific function that we were serving was sensitive site exploitation. SSI, yeah. SSE, so, sorry, yeah. Um, that's, CCI, that's right. sorry. I, I, you I, know, I knew what I was talking about. I just said it wrong. Oh, no, I, I, I fully get that. I ended up talking with Admiral McRaven some time after that and told him that I was in Afghanistan with his group. And he said, what were you doing? And I said, S-E-E or S-E-S or something. I was so damn nervous because I finally got a chance to actually have a, a one-on-one conversation with him. Um, but yeah, so we went with teams. I was a Pogue. I was back in the headquarters element, assigning people, directing people, um, flying out to make sure that they were being integrated into the the group or the team, or the regiment, or whoever they were particularly assigned to, and making sure that they had everything that they needed. So, um, you know, that was that was very different. But we were then, the and I say we, the people that were part of my team were part of their team. So they were embedded. Mm-hmm. Um, when, as far as success rate, you know, of actually, you know, capturing targets or, or the ability to uh, action targets. Was it better in Iraq or Afghanistan for you? Um, or about the same? <laughs> it, it was different because in Iraq, we, we were boots on the ground going out and participating in those things. In the special operations community, there's a, there's a huge group of people that support a small group of people like this. And so there's all those peripherals that, that are helping to put those people on target. And, and so just knowing that you're a part of that is very, very, I mean, it's very rewarding in Iraq. Our reward was, okay, we're going out, we're going to capture this guy, you know, we're actually going out on target. Um, 
it was, our team was because we were a small team. And so once we did our targeting package, we would then go to whatever combatant commander owned that battle space and present the targeting package and then get with them to prosecute it. Um, you know, between both deployments, and I'll, and I'll ask you, between Iraq and Afghanistan, um, are the, are the, what do you remember more? The successful ones that hit or the ones that you missed that you just thought you were going to get but didn't? Well, so um, any any time that there's an incident that uh, happens mm-hmm. and you look and you think, could I have prevented this? Could I have done something different? Could I have, um, I don't want to say pushed an interrogation harder or maybe gone out and collected some additional thing or found a different source. And, you know, and then you, you end up, because part of our job in, in Iraq was working with SEXI, the combined exploitation team. And so we'd go out uh, when they were bombings and we would dig because uh, I was trained to for large vehicle improvised explosive devices and how to investigate them. And so we would go out and look for signatures and we would look for items that could potentially be used, which then put you in immediate contact with um, um, the the blast center um, and every all the peripherals that go with that. So, you know, some of that sticks in my mind because um, I'm sure you've been to lots of those things and, and that's things that you never forget. And when you think that, could I have done something to prevent that? Sticks with you. Yeah. And, and, and it, that's the, the difficult part, right? I mean, there's always the what if factor uh, and, and similar to combat, you, you always start to question if I had done X, would the result have been Y? Right. Uh, you sort of replay the, the whole thing in your head and uh, whether it's guilt or otherwise, you want to try to manifest a, a result that's more favorable than the one that you got. And I think that's natural um, by all means, which kind of leads me into the next point. You know, um, when we talk to a lot of folks in your line of work uh, who necessarily aren't dealing with bullets whizzing by their head or rolling over IEDs, but yet the stress the intensity, the anxiety of day-to-day of doing this over a long, protracted period, you never bother to stop to realize what it does to your mind and your body and everything else. Um, Was there any sense for you that you were on overload, you were working too much, this stuff was starting to weigh down on you, or you didn't get a sense of that until you had kind of departed from that that environment? I don't think it ever really bothered me during deployments or while I was working. Um, you know, I think I was very mission focused and, and I knew that as a leader, I needed to be strong for, you know, the people that, uh, were with me. And, and so that I, I had no problem with never struggled during the job. Uh, after I retired, um, shit fell apart. Yeah, well, well, we'll get there in a minute. I wanted to ask you a couple more questions uh, just sure. in reference to the job. You know, it, it's interesting because 
the civilian community and the the military community, while we're all sort of working towards the same goal, I think the execution sometimes is different. Um, is there anything about the way the military does counterintelligence or counterterrorism that when you look at it from your side and go, hey, we do this better, we have a better process, we have a better whatever, like what what are some of the differences between those two or are there any? You know, I don't, I think because our organization and I don't want to say quasi-military because that's not, it's not the, the correct way to describe it is we work so closely with the military that I don't think there are any differences other than the end result. And I think that for a long time, in the counterintelligence field, people didn't see the end result. That might go off to a military uh, combatant commander or might go off to, you know, a CIA group or somebody else to, you know, further uh, prosecute it. Um, After 9-11, that all changed. And so I think that we were much more embedded and actually saw the end results because a lot of times you're writing an intelligence report and it goes off to never, never. Um, and you never know what happens. It's interesting. Yeah. No, again, I, I, um, and I'm not in that community. So I was just kind of curious if there was any noticeable differences in anything that the, the, the military does that the civilian world does all of us in the military would tell you, yeah, they probably do it more efficiently on the outside. Um, and then I'm sure the people on the outside would look at us and go, wow, you guys do that really well. How come, how come we don't do that? Uh, so I was just kind of curious if there was anything that stood out. I think there's, there's lessons to learn from both. Sure. Um, you know, how did you know, um, that it was time to leave the NIS and CIS when you were done? I mean, you'd spent almost 27 years there. Were you just tired? Were you just worn down? Or did you sort of career run its course? How does it all end for you? Okay. So with with me, I was I was moving up. I mean, when I got to Gitmo, I loved it down there. It was a beautiful island. It was it was a great place to be. Again, embedded with that military community, very close. And I just stayed there until I retired. Um, I was essentially told, no, you need to put in for promotion, blah, blah. I said, I don't want to. I was kind of told you will put in for promotion, put in for promotion, got promoted, got kicked off the island because of that, um, because there was no position available for me. So you got, got voted You to, got voted off the island before it was cool. Yeah. yeah okay. All right. I was just checking. So ended <laughs> up in Okinawa. I was the- uh, Another island, coincidentally. It. You keep getting voted off islands. Another What's island. going on here? Listen, I went from Japan to Okinawa <laughs> or from Japan to Gitmo, Gitmo back to Japan again. So I spent 15 years outside the country Wow! Um, of my career. Um, when I got to Okinawa, everything was fine. I was I was going to rise up if you know that it's a pretty high vis position, a lot to that rides on that if you screw that up. Um, it's easy to screw up, but if you survive it and you do a good job down there, then, you know, you're destined for another promotion and probably would have ended up the special agent in charge of somewhere, uh, probably back in Japan again. But um, so there was a death in our family and uh, on my wife's side. And as a result of that, we had a... Um, 
her stepdad had Alzheimer's and nobody to care for him. And so we were going to, I was just going to punch out then because somebody had to care for him. And at that point, you know, family's more important than, than money or jobs or anything else. And a good friend of mine called the deputy director and said, uh, hey, this is what's going on with Dave. And you guys know everything that he's done for this organization and all the, the silliness that you've put him through and, and the crazy jobs that he's done for you. Um, you need to help him out. And so they came to me and they said, hey, would you take the office in Dallas? And I said, absolutely. That puts me back home. Um, so I took the job and I said, before I take it, I'm going to give you three years and then I'm going to punch out. And they said, perfect, because technically it was a downward, um, movement. It was not a positional upgrade. It was a down, downgrade. Um, but I, I didn't care at that point. I just wanted to, uh, try to take care of family. All right, so it comes to an end, um, and you mentioned earlier that you didn't know uh, kind of what you had went through until after uh, you had got out. So you get out, and do you have a plan of what you want to do next? Do you know what you want to do? Oh, I I had a plan all written out. I mean, we're planners, you know. Uh, it was like an op plan. I knew right. I was going to work out. I was going to get back into my martial arts. I was going to run. I was going to ride my motorcycle. I'm going to study a foreign language. I had my days planned. And, you know, of course, it started out as as everything good does. Um, and then it falls apart. I ended up injured. Um, I've had three shoulder surgeries, a knee surgery, a couple, you know, the typical uh, hard on your body kind of thing. And so I hurt my shoulder and had to have surgery. And about that time, my wife, um, who she's been a yoga teacher forever, you know, it was one of the things that she could take with her during all our transfers. She also, um, she's got a master's degree in health education. She worked for the Marine Corps in their innovative and um, improvement office. She worked for Simperfit. I mean, so she's done a lot. She's the real brains behind this whole thing. She decided that uh, she wanted to start bringing the healing power of yoga to veterans. Um, ended up, we met some veterans with an organization called FARM, F-A-R-M, and it's Farmers Assisting Returning Military. And they had a small residential farm um, that was close to where we lived. And Charla um, walked in, they, they walked up and there was nobody there and it's big house on this kind of acreage. And so they walked in the door and, you know, yelled, Hey, is anybody here? And, uh, an individual named, uh, Orlando Garcia, who was a army first sergeant came out in a walker basically, cause he had had, uh, some serious back issues came out and they said Charlotte was with a, a gardening friend of hers who knew where the farm was. She said, Hey, this is what we want to do. And he looked at her and goes, and I think it was a Thursday or a Friday. And Orlando, Orlando, as we call him, he said, uh, can you start on Tuesday? And she's like, sure, but okay. So that's how Warrior Spirit Project got started. It was just the concept to go out and 
bring yoga to to veterans and it, we ended up meeting and becoming best friends with Steve Smith, Jeff Jeffers, Jason Corbin, Orlando Garcia, Hyatt, um, who were basically running the farm. And it was a great, great experience. And we really realized how impactful it was because our bodies, um, we like, we don't like to use the word broken, mm-hmm. but we're hurt, we're injured. And, and yoga can help through that healing which is what it did for me and my shoulder. Um, So just looking at all that, I decided, okay, well, I've dabbled in yoga, but I'm a martial artist. You know, I'm a punch you, kick you, throw you, stomp on you kind of guy. Um, But now I need to, I I need to do something else. So I went to yoga teacher training, ended up uh, really kind of, probably delving a little deeper into my my body which is where our trauma is stored Mm -hmm. um in the body mind kind of thing and and um so probably fast forward to about 2008 i went out to uh the range with some of my old guys and we were out on the range shooting, and afterwards I was chatting with one of the guys, and he looked at me, and bottom line is he said, Dave, you're fucked up. Really? He said, you need help. You need help. So I'm like – What was it like hearing that? Uh, kind of devastating. I knew something was wrong. There were, I mean, it was like something, something was not firing right inside my brain. I didn't know what, I didn't know why. Um, and he told me that he had just come back, um, from a program called save a warrior and save a warrior or saw is for veterans and first responders. It's free. It's up in Ohio. They had one out in California, their main places in Ohio now. And basically, all you had to do was get there. So he connected me with uh, one of the screeners for that. Um, And basically, I was driving downtown to Dallas probably three times a week for jujitsu training. And I drove down there and parked outside the gym, called this guy on the phone, sat, talked to him for about an hour. And I think within like three days, I was on a plane to Ohio. Wow. So, I mean, did you have any expectations of what you were going to see when you got there? No, had no idea. I just, I just knew because in our position, we're the ones that people come to for help. Right. We're the ones that always help. We're, we're not the, we're not the ones to ask for help. Um, And so, no, I had no preconceived notions. I just knew I needed help. When you get there, what sort of help do you get? It's a a crazy unique program. Um, Letting go of things. Mm -hmm. uh, Learning to trust. And learning to trust people that you don't know. Um, kind of, kind of digging deep, but you know, I'll say a little mysticism kind of stuff, maybe a little, uh, warrior culture from other cultures that's brought in and a lot of just deep diving and, you know, going back and looking at 
um, adverse childhood events um, and, and, and kind of just digging deep and walked away. Well, probably one of the, the things that we walked away from that is meditation. And we meditated it twice a day for 20 minutes. There's a what they call a warrior meditation. It's a three-part. It's uh, it's amazing. And I have done it every single day since then. And that's been almost, it'll be four years this November. So I have done this 20-minute meditation every single day. Never skipped a day. Since then. Wow. It'll keep you alive. Yeah. And... So that leads into now my wife and I, by this time, Warrior Spirit Project is up and running. Okay. Um, we got our 501c3. We self-funded for a full year, uh, got a 501c3. I mean, I'm not a business guy. I don't ask for money. I can't go out and go, hey, we need money. No, the uh, feeling. But every we don't pay. Nobody makes any money everybody's a volunteer. I'm a volunteer. My wife's a volunteer. Everybody that helps us are volunteers. We don't charge anything. Um, we don't charge veterans, first responders, their family members. Um, so our business model is really low cost, which is phenomenal because that's kept us afloat for, for almost eight years now. But we went to training and we learned um, a meditation called eye rest. And so it's not this eye, it's little I, capital R-E-S-T. And it stands for integrative restoration. And uh-huh. it was created by Dr. Richard Miller and taken to Walter Reed Army Medical Center in 2006 for combat wounded. It is amazing. Get online, find a recording, it's a guided meditation. All you do is lay down and listen to it and put your body in a state of rest where your brain remains active. There's no imposed imagery. We don't say, hey, you're going to go for a walk through the park or down to the ocean and listen, listen to waves crashing. It's none of that. You watch through body sensing, breath sensing, feelings, your feelings, whatever they are. Right. Feel this one. Feel that one. Um it's it's magic backed by brain science, and uh, so that is a huge part of our our program right now. So we do yoga, dogs, and dirt. Those are our three programs: yoga, dogs, um, and dirt. Yoga, dogs, and dirt. Yeah, rolls off the tongue. Good. Yeah. I'll, Anybody who works in the uh, gardening or farming knows it's soil, but yoga dogs in soil just doesn't just doesn't flow. Doesn't. <laughs> um, what are some of the? I mean, brag a little bit about some of the, the victories you guys have had at Warrior Spirit Project. I mean, people who have come in there and, and left and you know been in a better spot. I mean, I, I think for people to understand it, they need to kind of know where people were and how they got to where they need to be. Okay. So, because like, by the somebody, way, full disclosure, like, you know, I've done Pilates, but yoga feels like a stretch sometimes, pun intended, yeah. I guess. Um, you know, it's just like, am I really in the right mind for I can meditate by myself in my house. I'm cool with that. But like getting in a room with, you know, 60 year old women and bending and stretching just doesn't really resonate with me. 
That's the same way I was when I was working. And again, like I said, I'm a martial artist. I, I right. was teaching Japanese martial arts in Japan to Japanese. So I was pretty good. And I dabbled in yoga over there and I thought, this sucks. Um, <laughs> and it's more about slowing down and finding. So if you go to a yoga class, class in a um in a yoga studio you're not gonna you're not gonna find the yoga that we do we do a trauma-informed yoga we've been specialized training specifically for dealing and working with the veteran community and military community we've taught i mean i've got a whole page listed different places we've done gold star families we've done pre-deployments we've done Dallas Police Department, Rockwall Police Department, Farmers Branch. Um, we um, we partner with Carry the Load now, um, mm-hmm. which is a phenomenal organization. Um, we've done DAV. We've done the Cohen um, Military Veterans Clinic. I mean, I've got a, a list, but uh, we worked at the Dallas VA also. Mm-hmm. So I I led a class there at the Dallas VA, but it's mostly the we couldn't call it yoga um, because at the Dallas VA they had a recreational therapist who's you know whose program encompassed yoga, even though she was not a yoga teacher. Right. Um, so we called it the I rest meditation. We did a little bit of movement beforehand, and I had a I had a Vietnam veteran that was coming to my class and um, complex PTS. And he would drive an hour to get to the class. The class would be about an hour. Then he would drive home, which was about an hour and a half because they would put him in rush hours. And he told me one day, he said, Dave, he said, this is the best thing I've done for my PTS since Vietnam. Wow. Yes. And I love to tell that story because that that to me tells me that this is something that works that for a guy who has struggled for that long. So there's one story. And then you've got others that that come to you and go, hey, this stuff saved my life. Thank you. And if you, you know, and it goes back to what my mission as a counterterrorism, counter collector, and all this other stuff, our job is to save lives. So when you save that life, then you've accomplished your mission. And, and so every time that you hear that or you see the change of somebody, who calls you? And, you know, people who are still active in organizations, in the military, and they come to you and they work with you, and then you don't see them for a while and they disappear. Yeah. And then they call back. We just had one do that the other day, just call back and say, hey, I've just lost three people in, in the space of a, a week, and and I'm struggling. And you work with them, and then they're like, Thanks. I, I really, I was, you know, teetering. So. No, listen, I mean, again, I, I, uh, I am like in awe of the fact that something as simple as yoga and meditation 
could have the effect that it does, right? Like, and that's just my my being naive, just simply because, again, I, I it's not something that I would ever put my you know do myself. Um, so it, it sort of you know it piques my interest in a way. It's like okay, there is an other alternative out there to try something and do something different. You know, and the fact that you've made it free and you don't charge anybody anything and, and you've made it easy for people to do. Uh, by the way, WarriorSpiritProject.org is the website where they can learn more about it, right, and, and get more information if they want to reach out to you guys? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Um, we have Facebook, and I think it's like Warrior Spirit Project DFW mm-hmm. or Dallas for worth because that's where we started well let me draw it back into the military vein here one of the fundamentals fundamentals of marksmanship is breath work right yes you know when do you pull the trigger Mm -hmm. you pull the trigger at the end of the breath Mm -hmm. part of yoga and part of meditation is breath work and so the breath is extremely calming and now doctors and brain scientists and all these other people are starting to come out and recognize how you can regulate your central nervous system through the breath. Yeah. It's that simple. And and so we've gotten away from the simple and gone to the complicated or here, take this pill and it's going to work. But, you know, you take a pill to, to mute one emotion and it mutes all of them. You do a meditation. And if you have trouble sleeping, there's an eye rest for sleep. It's about 20 minutes long. I have never heard the end of it there's a record that you can get it's on our website it's dr miller um i've never heard the end of it you just lay in bed push play and lay there and listen and if you wake up in the middle of the night play it again interesting now i have to do this this on the website warriorspiritproject.org yes oh no see now we now we gotta try it now now we have to do it Oh, okay. So here's here's another good one. You know, we we partner with all these. We're really good at partnering with different organizations because part of our business model at the very beginning was we're not going to have a facility because that costs money. And if it costs money, then you've got to raise money. And we don't want to get in that circle. So we would go to different locations. We would find places that people would say, hey, come and teach in my class. And then we'd advertise or teach in my building. And we taught at the Center for Brain Health, which is part of UT Dallas. Um, you know, a variety of, of different places. But we also partner with the Adaptive Training Foundation, and they work with adaptive athletes. And a lot of those are military members that have had uh, injuries which result in amputations or, you know, um, spinal cord injuries, TBIs, a variety of different things. And we go and we teach there and the feedback that we get from participants there makes it worth the two hour drive. We drive in two hours to teach an hour and a half and then two hours back because during the pandemic, I decided I could no longer live in the DFW area and we punched out and uh, we moved east. We moved into the country. So but we still have volunteers. We've got a, a one of our board members is a, a Purple Heart recipient, Vietnam veteran. He teaches the meditation. Wow! And at uh, the Center for Brain Health every Wednesday. It's again, it's free. All you all you get to do is show up. That's amazing. Again, WarriorSpiritProject.org. Um, Dave, it's it's look. 
I knew that I was going to get a lot of value out of this, uh, of talking to you. This is fantastic. I mean, it really is. Uh, I, I hope everybody's gotten a lot from it. You know, just the, the sort of direct, uh, you know, connection to the military and everything you've done, you know, and, and, and for whatever it's worth, you know, I, I mean, I worked alongside guys in the intelligence community like you who weren't military, who got to wear like, you know, regular khaki pants and, you know, polos to work every day when we were in gear. But I, and I never thought of any one of them as anything but one of our team. You know, I, I never once occurred to me that these guys aren't with us. You know, they don't, it, it's, I never looked anybody who made our jobs better and easier. Anybody who worked as hard as we did was part of our team. And I don't have a single doubt that in your 27 years, you exuded that every single day. And you certainly uh, did it in a combat zone, both in Iraq and Afghanistan. That certainly was critical to mission success. So, you know, uh, I know how much you talked earlier about not being part of the military affected you, but I think you more than made up for it um, with the work that you did throughout your career in the NIS and NCIS. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate it that uh, just to have, having me on. And again, looking back at who your who your guests were, that uh, I appreciate you offering me this opportunity. And you know, again, if there's anything that our organization, my wife's mine, and uh, Jean uh, Morrissey, who is also on our board, if, if there's anything that we can do for you, please reach out. Uh, and, and I hope people will. I mean, honestly, it's, I mean, try it. It's, it's you one know. of the things that really attracted me to speaking with you is like what you're doing for veterans after the fact. I'm like, I've never seen this yoga thing, you know, is something that people like. And, and this is the big thing, you know, about the show that is sort of one of the, the byproducts of it. You know, I've run into so many people who have organizations. And what's great is that there's no like main path that we all take to get through PTS and, and, you know, the mental health issues. Not everybody walks the same path. Everybody's different. And I want to expose a lot of my, my, my brothers and sisters in the veteran community to anything that may sort of click with them a way that it didn't before. And, And if it's a new way to do it, whether it's yoga, meditation, whatever else it may be, riding a bike, climbing a mountain, reading a book, if somebody has something that is working for people, I want others in our space to know about it because folks who did what you did and folks who did what I did and thousands and hundreds of thousands of others who all went through all this stuff. um, We have to start taking care of ourselves. We've looked too much for others to do it for us. And we've struggled along the way. And I'm as guilty as anybody. I still do what VA claims and everything else. And you know, like everybody else, because that's part of the process. But in the, in, in the, in the other part of taking care of yourself is just doing you right. Like, there's an amount you can control and an amount you can't. I can't control what the VA decides is this and that and the other. What I can control is how I affect the things that the here and now that are important in my life. And, and Warrior Spirit Project is one of those things that I think people can grab onto and certainly use to affect their own lives in a positive manner. Yeah. Thank you. That was well said. Said almost spoken like a yogi. The here and now. Be here right now. I'm trying to, you know, to be present. Ah. Oh. I'm trying yes, to find my yes. chief. No, we're not, we're not going to go home and, and do any of that. But <sighs> there's a reason that windshields are big and rear view mirrors, mirrors are, are small. small. Right. You said it best. Well, again, warriorspiritproject.org. Uh, it's been amazing to talk to you. Nothing but continued success. Thank you so much for being willing to do this and share your story with our audience. I certainly appreciate it. And Dave Truesdale, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. Hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, 
Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you.